Um, I'm very pleased to introduce Dr. Davy Smith. Um, Davy Smith um, is uh, also a good friend and colleague from the University of California, San Diego. He's the chief in the Division of Infectious Disease and Global Public Health there. Um, he wears a number of hats at UCSD. Um, he's the director of the Translational Virology Corps at, at the UCSD CIFAR. He's the medical director of the Knight Clinic in Family Health Centers of San Diego. Um, he works at the VA Medical Center. He's the director of the HIV Hep C and HIV HPV Co-Infections Clinic at the VA in San Diego. He serves as the vice chair of research in the Department of Medicine at UCSD and perhaps most germane to what we're going to be talking about today. Um, he's uh, an international expert in both HIV cure and um, COVID treatment, particularly with monoclonal antibodies. And he is the um, Global Protocol co-chair of the ACTIVE-2 study, um, which is testing a variety of outpatient interventions um, for early COVID treatment. And he's going to be speaking us, to us today on um, the role of monoclonal antibodies and beyond for preventing severe COVID-19 disease. Uh, we were really looking forward to Dr. Smith's talk, and uh, he will be on to answer questions live afterwards. Hello. Thank you for coming and joining me today. Today, I'm, my name is Davey Smith. Um, I'm at uh, UC San Diego, and today I'm going to talk about got anything for this cough, and this is about treatment for COVID-19, and specifically early treatment for COVID-19, talking about antibody-based therapies. Here are my financial relationships. I've also updated them on the IAS USA website. Um, here's our learning objectives for today. So hopefully we get to learn about describing natural history of COVID-19. We look at the current state of our understanding of how antibody-based therapies are used for COVID-19, and also specifically how monoclonal antibody treatments for COVID-19 are made and how they're used. We might also talk a little bit about variants. So as many of you know, there are tons of drugs in development in different planning stages and different trials out there. And in fact, there are over 400 trials currently being reviewed and monitored by the FDA. Nine have received emergency use authorization and one has full approval for COVID-19. So let's talk about the natural, let's start off by talking about the natural history of COVID. Um, so everybody who gets SARS-CoV-2 infection starts off with no symptoms. In fact, some people get infected and never have any symptoms at all. Uh, but some go on to progress to mild, moderate, and even severe symptoms. At the beginning, it's all about the virus. So the viral load goes up and then it goes down, um, even while the disease actually gets worse and worse. If you're going to stop it in this early phase, you'd want to stop it with an antiviral. In this later stages, there's something about the virus that triggers an inflammatory process. So it, the human immune system goes a little bit, um, gets a little bit angry and starts to becoming inflamed. And perhaps at this setting, you'd want to use an immune modulatory. Also during these later stages, some people can become hypercoagulable. So they make lots of blood clots that can be in their legs or uh, everywhere you can think of, heart, etc. Um, perhaps then you would use an anticoagulant. And in trials right now, there are antivirals being studied, immune modulators being studied, and anticoagulants being studied along this continuum of COVID-19. 
this talk, we're going to focus on the antiviral. So blocking the virus at the beginning to keep from having this continuum of disease. But there's lots of different ways that we can interact with the virus in its life cycle um, to stop it. So here, SARS-CoV-2 has these spike proteins that you can think of as a key. They fits into a lock like the called the receptor for ACE2. So perhaps we could block that process. There's also uh, a human enzyme, a protease, that the virus needs to cut up its own proteins. Perhaps we can use a protease inhibitor to block that process. Other things, the body itself makes multiple substances that uh, modulate the immune system that can act as an antiviral. Think of interferon back in using it for hepatitis B and for hepatitis C. Perhaps that could also be used for SARS-CoV-2. SARS-CoV-2 also makes an enzyme called polymerase, and you could use small molecules to inter interfere with that polymerase to keep it from making new copies of itself. Uh, the virus also goes into these uh, endosomes, and perhaps you could acidify those endosomes um, with things like hydroxychloroquine or azithromycin um, to lock that virus in there. And these things are all been tried out. Today, we're going to talk about passive immunization, so this process here. And it's an old process. In fact, the first Nobel Prize ever in medicine was for uh, this process, passive immunization for diphtheria. And what scientists did is they grew diphtheria in the lab and the toxin and injected that into a horse. And the horse made an antitoxin, which was, of course, an antibody. And they were able to pull the sera out of the horse, um, concentrate this uh, antitoxin antibody, and then deliver that as a treatment. Back in the late 1800s, lots and lots of kids were dying of diphtheria, and this antitoxin saved a ton of lives, and this Nobel Prize in medicine is well-deserved. So let's fast forward to 2020 and look at convalescent plasma. Can we use the same process in a little different way um, for treatment of SARS-CoV-2? So here we have a person who got the infection, and they did great. They survived their infection, and they made some immune responses to that infection, that's how they got out of it. Perhaps uh, after they get rid of their infection, those uh, immune cells and immune antibodies here, for the most part, are what we're really looking for. So we take the blood out, we apherese it, we take the plasma collection. Hopefully it's full of great antibodies <clears throat> that we could then use for someone who has the infection, is not doing so well, and perhaps we can treat them with this convalescent plasma. So in January of this year, this was a paper published in the New England Journal. We had 165 people who were older, greater than 75 years old. We also had a group that was between the ages of 65 and 74, but with a comorbidity. And they were all early in the eight, uh, stages of their COVID-19, uh, but they were sick and they were coming into the hospital. Here on the y-axis is proportion free of severe respiratory diseases, <clears throat> disease. And it's better to be on top of this line. And people who got convalescent plasma did over time better than those people who got placebo. So maybe there was a signal there. Then there was a paper also published in the New England Journal of Medicine looking at adults with severe COVID pneumonia. They had 228 who got convalescent plasma, 105 who got um, <coughs> placebo. <coughs> and here on the y-axis is probability of clinical improvement or hospital discharge. And in reality, the placebo and convalescent plasma groups did equally the same over time. So that didn't really show that convalescent plasma did much good in this group. 
Then another study just published this week in the Lancet from the recovery trial looked at hospitalized adults with severe COVID-19, giving them either convalescent plasma or the usual care, almost 6,000 people in each of those groups. And it's looking at mortality, so death being the hard endpoint here. And these two lines uh, were exactly the same over time. So there was no uh, good effect of convalescent plasma for hospitalized adults with severe COVID-19. So the question is, can we do it better? So there are things called monoclonal antibodies based on a lot of research that was done uh, in the HIV realm, especially recently. And here is where they take someone, again, who had SARS-CoV-2. They did well. They made a good immune response, maybe made a ton of antibodies. And in fact, one of these antibodies, one clone, i.e. monoclonal antibody, was really good, really potent. So we pluck it out and put it in some, some cells and grow it up and then purify it and turn it into a treatment um, that we can then use for someone who might have SARS-CoV-2 to treat them or to block them from getting uh, SARS-CoV-2 if they were to become exposed. And there are over 25 companies right now that have monoclonal antibodies in various stages of clinical testing uh, for this treatment. So one of these that you might have heard about is Cassie and then Debbie. Um, here in this this uh, monoclonal antibody cocktail, since it's two of them, so it's kind of like a gin and tonic now makes a cocktail, um, is made by, you might also know by Regeneron cocktail. Um, here is a study where they had 275 patients randomized uh, to placebo or two of the doses of this cocktail. And they looked at the amount of virus that the person had over time. And here is the change in mean viral load from baseline. So you want to have a lower line. Um, over time in this group. And the placebo, uh, people who got the placebo all reduced their viral load coming out of their nose. Um, but the people who got Regeneron cocktail, either at the higher or the lower dose, had less virus than those who got placebo. So as soon as, as soon after this, uh, paper came out and the FDA looked at all the data, it received an emergency use authorization for treatment of outpatient early COVID-19. And also, President Trump was treated with this when he got his COVID-19. He was treated before this drug actually got its emergency use authorization, but he was treated with it. But, you know, it's just the virus. We don't know if that means anything clinically, so they also looked at uh, treatment with this monoclonal antibody cocktail um, to prevent hospitalizations or emergency room visits. And they looked at placebo, the two doses of the cocktail, and all the doses of the cocktail. And of the 78 people who got the placebo, there were seven hospitalizations or emergency room visits, or 9% of the people had that, versus people who got either one of the two doses of the cocktail only had 3% or 2% of the people went to the emergency room or hospitals. Um, which was quite a big difference, although the numbers of events actually are quite small. So another one you might have heard about is bamlanivimab, and it's made by a company called Lilly. And it's only one antibody, uh, so it's not a cocktail. So monoclonal antibody, bamlanivimab. And here they looked at symptoms, and they looked at 452 people who had early COVID-19, and they were given either a placebo or three dose, different doses of BAM. And then they looked at change of baseline of those symptoms. And the people who got placebo all had their symptoms go down over time. But the people who received BAM 
when they pooled all the doses together, had lower symptoms than the people who had placebo. And it also received an emergency use authorization soon after the publication of this paper. But then that emergency use authorization, EUA, was revoked. And we'll talk more about that. And that's the cliffhanger for this presentation. We'll talk more about it in a second. But another thing that you could possibly do with a monoclonal antibody is prevent somebody from getting infected. And here's a nursing home study. These are the proportion of residents in a nursing home who got infected. And I remember beginning of this epidemic, it was absolutely horrible. Lots of people in nursing homes died from COVID-19. So protecting them would be a high, high priority. And here they looked at people who got placebo or got BAM. The people who got placebo in the nursing home had many more infections over time than the people who got BAM. Then they looked at viral loads, looking at this monoclonal antibody cocktail. So they added another antibody to it. So now we have a a whiskey and a Coke, I guess, um, for our cocktail. Um, two different monoclonal antibodies. But here they compared it first to all the monoclonal BAM at, at different doses, so just one antibody, compared it to placebo here in red, and those that got any of the doses of BAM had lower viral loads than people who were in the red box there uh, got the placebo. But the people who got uh, the BAM plus a TESI or the cocktail actually had lower viral loads than any of them at days three, seven, and even up to 11. And another way to look at it is here's change of viral load on the y-axis, study day on the x-axis, placebo in the gray, and then those people who had uh, the cocktail had a much steeper decline in viral load. They also looked at uh, clinical endpoints. And here's a hospitalization or death by any cause. People who got the placebo um, had a 7% rate of hospitalizations or death, um, but people who got the cocktail only had a 2% uh, rate of hospitalization or death. And actually, if you drill down to just deaths, people who uh, died in this group, so 517 people got placebo, and there were seven, uh, sorry, 10 deaths, but people who got the cocktail, there were no deaths in about the same number of people. And this got an emergency use authorization, and it's in the NIH guidelines for treatment of early COVID-19. Now, I just want to review a little bit of the high-risk patients eligible for monoclonal antibody treatment. So this is the BAM plus a TESI or the CASI plus a DIVI. Um, and uh, these guidelines are changing all the time. They just changed on Friday. I updated these. They're probably going to change again. And the other big caveat here is that everybody's health system has a little bit of unique criteria. So please uh, check your local area um, where you would send somebody to get a monoclonal antibody to know exactly uh, who would qualify at your institution. But um, the FDA says anybody over the age of 65, good to go. It doesn't matter if they have no comorbidities. And anyone greater than the age of 12 with any of the following, sort of heart disease, high blood pressure, emphysema, asthma, a BMI that only needs to be greater than or equal to 25. It used to be 35 and now it's 25. Kidney disease, diabetes, immunosuppressive disease, such as uncontrolled HIV or a treatment that causes immunosuppression, neurodevelopmental disorders like cerebral palsy, or someone who might need a trach, et cetera, to live. And also pregnancy has now been added to the list of um, allowing someone to be considered as high risk and eligible for the monoclonal antibody 
um, therapy. Um, for a lot of my HIV patients um, who are doing great on their antiretrovirals, uh, we might not consider them immunosuppressed. And there's lots of data showing that people who have good CD4 counts and on the therapy um, seem to be doing okay with COVID-19 and might shouldn't be considered high risk. However, if you dig a little deeper, uh, HIV itself causes a lot of inflammatory diseases such as chronic kidney disease, diabetes, high blood pressure, definitely cardiovascular disease. So basically HIV has often set up many of my patients to be in this higher risk category, not exactly from HIV itself in terms of the immunosuppression, but from all these other comorbidities. And honestly, these other comorbidities are a much bigger predictor of hospitalization and death for COVID-19 than the immunosuppressive part. So in your patients, really look down and see uh, if a lot of these other factors um, put them in a higher risk category and perhaps needs to then be treated with monoclonal antibody therapy if they were to get COVID-19. So monoclonal antibody therapy right now, it is only for high-risk people uh, with early COVID-19. It is not for people who are hospitalized due to COVID-19. There have been studies looking at uh, monoclonal antibody therapy in the inpatient setting, and those studies have not uh, shown efficacy. In fact, some of these monoclonal antibodies have shown to make people worse if they're already in the hospital um, or people who require oxygen because of COVID-19, or if they were already on oxygen, then they had to bump up their oxygen flow rate because of COVID-19. They are not eligible for monoclonal uh, antibody therapy. Um, however, there are some studies going on now that might show some promise that monoclonal antibody therapy in certain situations might be useful for this group, um, but that is not the current monoclonal antibodies that we currently have um, at our disposal now. Other things that are coming in the future are new routes, so intramuscular, subcutaneous, inhaled versions, uh, which makes it much easier. Uh, previously, uh, I'm sure you all remember how hard it was to get these infusions of monoclonal antibodies to the right people at the right time, especially when they were infected and contagious, etc. It just made them not as useful. So hopefully these new um, routes will help with that. The other thing to know is that emergency use authorization does not equal full approval, and the FDA has been very explicit that new and more research is needed uh, before the granted approval. And it's ongoing, so hopefully that happens soon. So let's go back to bamlanivimab, um, and we're going to talk a little bit about evolution, and specifically SARS-CoV-2 and how it evolved into us. So it's an RNA virus and has a modest mutation rate. Um, it's definitely not as high a mutation rate as HIV and definitely not high as hepatitis C, but it does. It evolves, and it was sitting happy in bats, going from one bat to another until one day it jumped into uh, a human and said, oh, I could live here. I just need to adapt myself. I need to make a few evolutionary changes in myself, and that's where we get to start talking about variants. And many times when we talk about variants, we use these funny letters like D614G in spike. So just want to go through that just quickly just so we're all on the same page of what that means. And here uh, you have a spike protein. The virus has a spike protein, and the protein is made up of a whole bunch of amino acids. And those amino acids each um, are identified by one letter. And in this situation, D is aspartic acid and G is a glycine. And here's virus one. 
And it starts off in a spike protein and a whole list of amino acids um, that might spell out, let's say, Dr. Davy Smith. And at the 614th one, the 614th position, it starts off with a D, um, but then um, it evolves. It says, I need to change myself just a little bit so that I can fit better um, in this new human house that I have. So I'm going to change that D to a G, so a spartic acid to a glycine at position 614. And that's how you get the nomenclature of D614G. And when the virus did that, um, it made a few viruses, little particles um, at the D position, but as soon as it changed to a G position, it made a whole bunch. That increased its infectivity, increased its transmissibility in animal models. In evolutionary terms, we call this, it increased its fitness. And in fact, what we saw was that at the beginning of the pandemic, all the viruses that we sequenced at the 614 position had a, gly- had a, a spartic acid. But after uh, around mid-February last year, and definitely a year ago from now, all the viruses had changed their D to a G that we're circulating. So another big question is, do these variants impact our monoclonal antibody treatments? And here's a nice paper um, that was show that looked at the different uh, antibody cocktails um, and uh, looking at um, different uh, variants. So here is the amount of activity. So you want to be higher on this uh, list. Uh, and these are the different variants. So here is B117, which is also which was first found in the UK, D614G, which I just talked about. And then there's a B1351, which is originally identified in South Africa. And here's the different monoclonal antibodies and monoclonal antibody cocktails. And the one that was really knocked out was bamlanivimab um, here. And when it did that, it um, lost its emergency use authorization. Now, the new cocktails, when you have more than one antibody attacking the spike protein at different places, um, these variants have left less room to be able to evade and seem to hold their susceptibility to the cocktails. So another antibody therapy that's currently being tried is polyclonal antibodies in cows. So similar to that uh, Nobel Prize winning um, experiment, uh, people are looking at cows. Cows make a lot more blood. But the other thing that they can do with cows is they can completely transplant a human immune system into a cow. So they make a cow with a fully uh, human immune system. So when the cow makes an immune response, like say an antibody, it's making a human antibody. And here they uh, take a cow who has this humanized immune system and they basically vaccinate it with a whole bunch of spike protein from SARS-CoV-2. The cow makes an immune response, an antibody response, but instead of it being monoclonal, just one antibody, it makes a whole bunch of different types of antibodies to that um, spike protein. So it's a polyclonal antibody response. Cows make tons and tons of blood. You can pull out the plasma. You can concentrate those antibodies to really high levels to know how well they can neutralize the virus. And then that can be turned into a treatment. And this is currently being studied as we speak. So in summary, antivirals are being developed for SARS-CoV-2. Many, many antibody-based therapies for CoV-2. And many are promising. And some have gotten emergency use authorizations 
Currently, they're only available by intravenous infusion, but new versions are coming. Hopefully, those also show to be effective, such as the intramuscular and the subcutaneous and the inhaled versions. But we have to keep, we have to be vigilant, but uh, diligent because uh, viral evolution may thwart our best efforts for these monoclonal antibodies. And just as a plug, uh, you can check out many of the therapies that I talked about here today um, through the Operation Warp Speed, uh, formerly known as Operation Warp Speed, the U.S. government's response to COVID, Active 2, uh, riseabovecovid.org. Many of those therapies are currently being done in that trial now. And I'd like to acknowledge uh, the Active 2 participants in that study team, um, U.S. government response to COVID-19, my colleague Antoine Shalon, and of course, uh, Croy 2021, who helped with some of these slides. Um, thank you for your attention. Thanks so much, Davey. That was really, really great. And, you know, um, we, I, I know that, you know, you've been thinking about the utility of these therapies for COVID, particularly outpatient setting, so much uh, all day, every day. It, um, I know it's, it can be all consuming. You know, I think we have, um, some really, uh, important questions from, from the group that people are wondering about long haul COVID. And if you have thoughts on, you know, we've had these anecdotal response, uh, you know, uh, reports of, of people, um, uh, doing better with long COVID type symptoms after vaccination. But do you think MABs might have a role there? And, and what might, might mechanisms be that we could, think about um, as, 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 you know, being worth studying about that? Yeah, no, it's a good question. Thanks. Um, we are looking at long COVID. So we think that it is an inflammatory process. And perhaps if we stop that from kicking in um, so that the people don't go on to moderate severe disease, that perhaps that early intervention would prevent it. But heck, I don't know. Uh, so we're studying that now in active too. That's, that's great. It's, it's good to know that that's being looked at because I think that's something that a lot of folks are suffering with when we have relatively little, little to offer, um, in the way of specific therapies. So that'll be great data to have. Um, what do you, what do you think, Davey, would be the utility or lack thereof of sort of monoclonals in someone who had been fully vaccinated, um, and had a breakthrough infection and, in vaccine, um, or might it depend on what the sort of uh, protoplasm of the patient was and what you thought the, the context was for failure? How do you think about that? Yeah, that's a good question as well. And we don't exactly, we definitely don't know. Right? Um, but I, I do think that people who have uh, lots and lots of risk factors and they have a breakthrough infection after vaccination should be considered for a monoclonal antibody therapy, perhaps, um, especially for those that are at the highest risk for um, progression. Davey, you know, um, I, you know, I imagine that running active two is, you know, pretty much running seven registrational trials all at the same time, and it must be a mind-numbing experience. You know, what what can you sort of tell us about the landscape of drug development for COVID, you know, what's, you know, with all these, you know, agents coming in and going out and, and trying to prioritize, you know, what's, what's your outlook on therapeutics? Because if we have another wave, you know, I think this is going to become again, much more at the forefront of our thinking, perhaps less so at this particular moment as, as it's on the wind down of this wave, but it's going to come back, isn't it? 
Yeah, I think we're going to see it back. I think there's a few reasons for that. I think there'll probably be going to be some risk compensation once people start getting vaccinated. And But then there's also going to be the waning of the vaccination. And then there's going to be the variants and increased transmissibility. But it's still a huge problem also throughout the world. So Active 2 is also a global uh, trial. So we're looking at all sorts of um, different therapies all across the world. And we just we just started our 200th site today. So it's pretty exciting. Um but we have therapies that are oral. We have therapies that are injected, uh, infused, or IM, or sub-Q. We have some that are inhaled. So we're pretty excited about all these different um, options that might uh, show some efficacy. So hopefully we can get those out as quickly as possible. Thanks, Pat, and congratulations on site number 200. Um, yeah. You know, um, I think a lot of sites across certainly the U.S. I know at our site, we have this problem, had a lot of trouble thinking about how to operationalize the administration of, of, of these antibodies and these therapies in the outpatient setting and how to do it safely and resource allocation and staff allocation. You know, what, what guidance since you've sort of had the longitudinal perspective of, you know, all these different sites trying to implement this? What have you learned from that? What can, you know, sites that are still trying to figure this out learn? Yeah, the, the things that I have to say, the big things that we learned uh, was that monoclonal antibodies infused during someone who had acute infection who's contagious is really hard. And uh, the other one that it just laid bare is that how disparities just can really uh literally kill our most vulnerable communities. And uh, we need better public health systems to be able to get out uh, therapies, whether it's monoclonal antibodies or whatever. But in the setting of a pandemic, um, it's been very, very difficult. If if places are still struggling on how to do that, uh, there are now more help within the Department of Health and Human Services for helping set up those um, emergency use authorization uh, monoclonals. Yeah, uh, it's certainly a complicated landscape. Um, and, you know, I know, you know, various groups have, have continued to struggle with this. And I guess I would just come and amen to your comments on uh, the need for more public health infrastructure to be ready for whatever is next. Um, we have some, some of the audience members wondering what the common monoclonal antibody side effects that you're seeing are and is it dependent on the route through which they're administered um, to help people contextualize the risks and benefits to potential patients or study participants? Yeah, so uh, that's a great question. That what surprised me the most in this whole process was that boy, people really tolerate these monoclonal antibodies better than I thought they were going to, especially the infused um, side. We've had some infusion reactions, but really small. And we also had them in the placebo arms almost as, as high. So uh, that was really good news. The other one is for the other agents, the sub-Q and the intramuscular, lots of bruising. It kind of hurts. We're having to inject a lot of um, fluid um, in those uh, processes. So I'm hoping that the companies figure out how to give less or figure out how to get the right levels at the right time without those sort of injection reactions, um, bruising, infections afterwards, pain, et cetera. Is it weight-based dosing, dosing for these intramuscular and subcutaneous infusions? So the volume depends on the, the size of the patient? Some of them, but most of them not. They've now 
figured out, you know, basically what level of PK that they need and can get it in most people. Yeah. So how, how, how large an infusion or injection are we talking about? Yeah, we can get a couple of mils and then sometimes it's multiple injections. So we have one study going on right now that's intramuscular where we have to give two different injections at two different sites, two mils. So it's, it's those bad, you know, when I give penicillin for syphilis, right? And people do not like me. We're talking about like that. So. Yeah, it's very interesting. People have very different thresholds of tolerating these in these larger volume injections, don't they? Some people are like, whatever. And some people, it's a deal breaker, isn't it? Yep. Yep. Yeah. It, you know, we have one of the audience members wondering about, you know, in, in HIV, we're so used to sort of thinking about, you know, iris and inflammatory complications. And obviously that's a huge um, factor in, in more advanced COVID disease, you know, not really the, the topic of, of what you were talking about today, but did you have thoughts on sort of where the field is with sort of anti-inflammatory therapies for more advanced COVID, or maybe is there even a role for anti-inflammatories earlier on, or where do you think the field is with that? Yeah, I, I don't know about anti-inflammatories early on. We're, we're definitely looking at different agents for that. And I think some of the immune modulators like inhaled interferon might hit both be an antiviral and also change the inflammatory landscape. Uh, definitely at the beginning of this pandemic, we used a very large sledgehammer for a lot of changing of immune uh, factors such as dexamethasone. But uh, now they're in the studies are looking at more surgical approach like change jack stat or IL-28, those sorts of things. And maybe we can get a better approach soon. Yeah, thank you, Davey. And thanks for, thanks for even speculating sort of outside of what we, you know, of the data. Yeah. You, you know, I think it's, it's always important to sort of think about what the next steps might be and what the pathogenesis in, tells us about therapeutics. Um, so thanks again for, for being such a good sport with our questions, um, really insightful questions from the audience and, and a great talk. 